on today's episode of Mile Higher. So many balls were dropped that this could have easily been solved by now. There's just a lot of weird things with this one. Today, we are going to be looking at an unsolved case out of Australia. We're going to be talking about the murder of a couple. By the name of Ray and Jenny Kellett. What's interesting is that the only other person that was with them is a man by the name Graham Milne. Surprise, surprise, has not been cooperative whatsoever with authorities or with the family. Could he have found something? Didn't want to share it with them, took it, killed them? Does this make any sense to you whatsoever? He just prospected for 18 hours straight, did not sleep, comes back, packs up his entire camp, and then heads home on a nine-hour drive. They were able to make that argument because of the shitty work done initially by the police. Yeah. Should have been made a crime scene right away. The events that unfold from here to the point where their dog is found is still a mystery to this day. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 287. And today we are going to be looking at an unsolved case out of Australia. And this one is, I mean, with all unsolved cases, they're very frustrating. Confusing at times. Yep, confusing. And it feels like this one definitely could have been solved right now if the right steps were taken. So it's really frustrating, especially for the family members who have suffered not knowing what actually happened to their loved ones. Um, we're going to be talking about the murder of a couple. Well, the suspected murder. I think most of you will agree that this was most likely homicide. Um, however, one of them is actually still missing to this day. Yes. Yeah, so this is the couple by the name of Ray and Jenny Kellett. And they went missing in the Australian bush in 2015. And there's just a lot of weird things with this one because these guys were out there because they're prospectors. They worked in the mining industry and you know what goes hand in hand with mining is prospecting, looking for gems, minerals, all that kind of good stuff out there for fun. And they just vanished uh, after a trip. And what's interesting is that the only other person that was with them is a man by the name Graham Milne. And Graham, surprise, surprise, has not been cooperative whatsoever with authorities or with the family. Very sketch. And yes, is definitely a person of interest in this case. But I think because of some of the steps that investigators took, some of that crucial evidence that may link Graham to the homicide of Ray, which we'll get into that later, and possibly the disappearance of Jenny, because we've still not been able to find Jenny. Jenny's yep. out there somewhere uh, to this day. But with that being said, we're going to start off this episode like we do all of our cases, going into the background of the victims, Jenny Kellett and Ray or Raymond Kellett. The one thing to note with this that's a little bit different than some of our other cases that we don't have a ton of information about their childhoods. We don't. There's not a lot of information public. Uh, that we were able to gather on that. So we're going to kind of pick up with them in the their adult lives. Yeah, there's actually quite a bit of information for us to go over today. And it can be a bit complicated. So definitely do your best to follow along with what we're saying as much as possible. Um, but yeah, let's start out with Jenny. Jenny was known to all those around her as being a very friendly, kind, 
and helpful person, just about as decent as a person could be. Her beautiful smile and laugh made everyone fall in love with her. And Jenny was also the mother of three, and they were kids from her first marriage. And their names are Kelly, Darcy, and Brittany. Now, she did maintain a cordial, if, if not honestly friendly, relationship with her first husband, um, which was just in Jenny's nature. She was a very chill person and, like I said, incredibly kind. So at the time of her disappearance, Jenny worked at the Fortescue Metals Group, particularly the Cloudbreak Iron Ore Mine in Western Australia. There, she operated heavy haul trucks and transported heavy loads of materials around the surface of the mine. And as you can imagine, this was pretty intense work. Some would describe it as backbreaking work, but it was work that Jenny genuinely enjoyed. Truly badass, if you ask me. Have you ever seen the mining trucks? No, I don't know much about mining, honestly. I've learned a lot These doing research for this. trucks that they use in mining are massive. You know, like the the classic kids' toy, the Yellow Tonka trunks, trucks, trunks, trucks. <laughs> yeah. So those are real trucks in real life. Pull up a picture of, yeah, of the see. type in like mining dump truck. These things are massive. Like the wheels are. Whoa. Yeah. yeah huge. Yeah. yeah. So Jenny potentially operating these on a daily basis. These massive, massive trucks because they're carrying, I mean, they're carrying iron ore. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Super badass that she was doing that. But very, I mean, mining is just very, very hard work, hard labor. Yeah, but like I said, she she really loved it. She was very passionate about the work that she did. And it was there that she met her future husband, Ray. So Raymond Kellett, or Ray, also had kids from his first marriage. His daughters, Charmaine and Melanie, who goes by Mel, And Ray was known by his friends and family as being incredibly adventurous and also very smart. He loved to explore the Australian bush and prided himself on skills in safety and preparedness. His brother David says that Ray's love of adventure and safety as well translated into his work at the Cloudbreak Mine as a plant operator. And even though Ray and Jenny had both been previously married once before, They didn't let their past relationship issues stand in the way of future happiness. The two of them were both in their 40s when they began dating and had fully established lives and grown children at that point, but they felt it was never too late for love because of course it's not. And the two couldn't help fall head over heels for one another. And according to their families, the pair did everything they could to always be together. They were even described as being laminated to one another. I just loved that. I mean, as you can tell, they were just so, so in love. Ray and Jenny tied the knot in 2007, surrounded by friends and family. And their first dance was to the 1968 classic love song, This Guy's In Love With You by Herb Alpert. And after the two of them got married, the couple pooled their earnings and purchased a 150-acre farm in Beverly, Australia. Now, Beverly is a tiny town of about 1,000 people located approximately 80 miles southeast of Perth. And in addition to purchasing the farm, the two of them also adopted a Great Dane, a beautiful dog named Ella. And Ella brought immense joy to Ray and Jenny. And those who met the dog knew her as being very well behaved and always glued to Ray's side. Now, it seemed like things were going really well for them. Like this was the start of, you know, a perfect marriage. But little did they know tragedy was only a few years away. The dates aren't clear, but at some point in 2014, Jenny, who had chronic back problems, started experiencing really bad back pain while at work. So she was sent to the on-site medical facility where she met a man named Graham Milne. 
Graham was a medical worker at Cloudbreak, and it just so happened that he shared a common interest in prospecting with both Jenny and Ray. So if you're not familiar with prospecting, it's a name for a hobby for searching out precious minerals and gems, whether it's in mine shafts, riverbeds, or just in the ground. I'm sure all of us or a lot of us as kids did a little bit of like gold panning before. Oh, yeah. Some, uh, you know, amateur prospecting. I think it's really fun. There was like a period in college where I was like, oh, I'm going to switch my entire career path and go into geology. I wanted to be a geologist. Yes, you do. That was a short yeah. Short sent there. Yeah, but. I I start because then I started looking at like how much science I'd have to take. I was like, oh, that's gonna be <laughs> way harder hard. than I thought. Yeah, but it is a really interesting field of work. I actually, this is really embarrassing, but I never knew that it was called prospecting. Really? And then, <laughs> what do you think it was? Just mining? Like, yeah, I just I don't know. I've never known much about mining. And then we've been watching Toy Story recently a lot with oh, our daughter. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, that's why he's called the prospector. Right? He has a little pickaxe. Yeah. It all clicked for me in that moment. Anyway. Yeah, I think mining is like a larger scale operation. Prospecting is something that like an individual can do. Mm. Like as an individual, I mean, an individual could be called a miner too as well. They're kind of, I guess they're kind of interchangeable, but. Prospecting is kind of more like in the hobby. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's more of, you know, you wouldn't be like, I mine for a hobby. You know what I mean? Right, right. Prospecting, I guess is the right term. That term goes back like to the 1800s. More of like the adventuring. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Okay. Going out and yeah, just being in nature and looking for cool rocks. So Jenny and Ray had obviously talked a lot about prospecting and you know putting together some adventures they could do together because this is just something they both enjoyed. And they knew that Graham was a semi-professional in prospecting. He was well-trained in the safety procedures and he knew all the best places to go. Or that's at least what he said. So after hearing of the sandstone mines north of Perth, Jenny and Ray knew they had to check it out and they needed to take Graham along with them to be their guide. Now, there's not a whole lot of background information about Graham Milne. The man was in his early 60s when Jenny and Ray approached him about a potential prospecting trip in March of 2015. By all accounts, Graham was known for being quiet, awkward, and even a little standoffish. Even when Graham began visiting the Kellett's home to prepare for the trip, Ray and Jenny's family said they felt uncomfortable and that he seemed uncomfortable ray's brother said during an interview on an australian true crime podcast that graham wouldn't even eat at the same table as everyone else he just grabbed his food and then wandered out to the yard to eat alone which that is very odd especially if you're being invited over to somebody's house so i see why they're a little bit sketched out by that still graham said he considered himself great friends with the kellets and the couple may have felt the same since they decided to take a 10-day prospecting trip into the Australian bush with Mr. Milne. They had spent a lot of time planning this out together. In fact, it was a trip they worked on for over several months, and the goal was to stay near the sandstone gold mines and search for any quote-unquote lost gold that had been left behind. The group had spent weeks on the Kellett farm practicing techniques for entering the mines and learning how to utilize all the proper safety equipment. The men even drew maps to the mine shafts they planned to visit and made notes about the best techniques for entering and exiting those mine shafts. They seemed to be completely prepared when they finally took off for the sandstone mines on March 15, 2015. So a little bit of history on the sandstone gold mines. They have a history that stretches back over 100 years, actually. The first discovery of gold was in 1894, and then the second in 1903. Then the discovery of the gold in those mines just took off like crazy, with over 930,000 ounces of gold mine just between 1903 and in 1916. 
Mining is a major industry in Australia, and in Western Australia alone, where Jenny and Ray lived, it's the third largest commodity sector, totaling over 17 billion Australian dollars, which would equate out to roughly 11 billion US dollars. In 2010, the sandstone mine was put into a state known as, quote, care and maintenance, which essentially means the mines were closed but were being cared for so that they could be reopened later on down the road. To many prospectors, this meant that there was potential for a lot more gold. I mean, it makes sense. If they're going to kind of uh, take care of it and maintain it, they're obviously going to come back because they think there's more there's gold there. something to protect, right. right? Right. So it made it a popular spot or area for prospectors to go and try to, to find gold. But this area is not friendly to beginners, and it comes with a lot of potential dangers. We're talking some scary creatures out there in Australia. It's like one of the things Australia is known for is some of the the deadliest creatures that you don't want to meet, they live out there. We're talking hornets, redback spiders, which is one of the deadliest spiders. Australia has some gnarly spiders, man. If you're scared of spiders, Australia's got them for sure. Seen a lot of scary videos. King brown snakes, of course, wild dingoes, and buff-ass kangaroos. Dude, some of those kangaroos are to describe them they're scary they are they're not all that big like we saw some at uh, i think phillips island or whatever i think is what oh, the yeah. island is called yeah there's different actually ins- i have some pictures of breeds that of that was really cool they, or they we, were just like, baby fed them ones. right out of our hands yeah i think they were babies they weren't the big ones no. that we've seen in videos but yeah some of those videos they look like they're straight up like animated like doesn't even look real to me well there's that have you seen that one video of of the the crazy jacked kangaroo that's got a headlock on the like the farmer's dog yeah this one right here yeah oh, it, wait yeah pull it up I look, don't at that one. look at this guy oh this is he goes toe-to-toe with him because <laughs> he was like oh, drowning his dog oh. look at my dog no you would do that for your charlie hell yeah i would open ass <gasps> you have to literally fight them <laughs> they just look like I don't know. It looks so unreal. Unreal. I don't know how to describe it. Like, I had never known. Kangaroos are one of the oh, most iconic cute. animals. Yeah, those in are like Australia. the ones that we saw. Their cute appearance yeah, and bouncy gait have made them. <laughs> but some, look at that. <laughs> look at that. Like the fuck. That just that looks like a man in a suit. <laughs> okay, I want to see like a UFC fight where someone fights a kangaroo. But I guess okay, that's probably not. Wait, what? I take it back. I take it back. <laughs> that didn't honestly I'd be scared for the UFC fighter me. because yeah they the would probably claws kill them, on yeah. those guys are insane and they swing they like punch yeah and but you have to literally so go <laughs> well you have that. to if you want to save your animal you literally have to go punch the kangaroo yeah in the face yeah anyway all right we're getting distracted anyways kangaroos are really cool animals just Australian general Big fan. such a cool place to there's so many interesting creatures interesting wildlife there. yeah lots of sharks too mm. yep all right Anyway, but that's a different conversation. This episode is also brought to you by our brand, Higher Love Wellness. We're running a Valentine's Day sale right now that's running through February 18th over at higherlovewellness.com. You get 14% off site wide, everything, including bundles, which we don't normally discount bundles, but we are discounting bundles this time around. If you're currently a CBD user, now is the time to stock up. If you've never tried CBD before, It is a great daily supplement that just helps you mellow out, relax. There's no psychoactive effects to it. Most of our products do not contain THC, so you don't have to worry about any of that funny business. 
but we offer CBD in oils, to gummies, to topicals. We even have dog treats, both chewables and biscuits, which our dogs absolutely love. They go crazy for them. So take advantage of this sale right now. We ship to all 50 states, including uh, a select number of countries out there. Unfortunately, we don't ship to Canada. I'm sorry, our fellow Canadians, they won't let us in. But you can see the full list of countries on our website. And right now, that sale is 14% off basically everything on the site running through February 18th at higherlovewellness.com. So what drew Ray and Jenny to such a gnarly area of Australia? Something that Ray called the $3 million patch. They're convinced that this area was filled with gold, specifically the Bell Chambers Mine, which is approximately 18 miles south of Sandstone. For reference, Sandstone is about 440 miles from the nearest major city of Perth. Ray and Jenny were purposely secretive about the exact location of this prospecting trip when it comes to their family and friends, which isn't unusual for gold prospectors. After all, prospectors want to have their secret spots, right? You don't want to share that with everybody, especially if you go and find gold. According to Dave Kellett, the stories of the $3 million patch are just rumors, though. But he believes that Graham really like talked up this area and enticed the couple with stories of what they could possibly find out there. And knowing how skilled Graham was at prospecting, Ray and Jenny really believed his stories. Either way, the couple likely would have just gone on this trip just for the sheer adventure of it all. I mean, they did camping trips. They're outdoorsy. They had rooftop tents on their cars. Like, they were very much about the outdoors. Mm -hmm. So with their destination in mind and their training complete, the trio packed up for this trip. And Ray and Jenny informed their families that they would be inaccessible by cell phone for 10 days and left a satellite phone number with them just in case of emergencies. Then, on March 19th, hours before the break of dawn, the couple, along with Ella, began their trek towards the sandstone gold mines. Jenny drove an old Land Cruiser and hauled a quad bike behind her, and Ray drove his Land Rover Discovery with Ella by his side. They arrived at what I believe is pronounced Wubbin. It could be Wubin. I'm not entirely sure, so I'm sure there's an Australian out there who can correct me on that, but we, we tried looking it up and couldn't really get a definitive answer. But anyway, this is approximately a three-hour drive from Perth, and they got there in time to meet Graham for breakfast at the Liberty Service Station. He was driving his own Land Cruiser with the license plate that read 01 Grumpy. Interesting. So the three of them arrived at their destination in the afternoon and set up camp approximately two miles south of Tabletop. 30 kilometers or just over 18.5 miles south of the sandstone town site. And their campsite was only about one mile off of Payne's Find Sandstone Road in an area known to locals as Bell's Camp. So from this point on, we know they set up camp. The events that unfold from here to the point, which we'll get into in just a moment, where their dog is found, is still a mystery to mm -hmm. this day. And the only person from this trip that has anything to say about what events unfolded is Graham Milne, which, of course, we'll get into later on. But just to be clear, we don't know anything, really. So meanwhile, back in Perth on March 28th, Jenny and Ray's families hadn't heard from them in almost 10 days, but they weren't worried because, as we explained, they were explicitly told that they would be unreachable. However, on March 28th, worry set in pretty quickly when Ella, their dog, was found wandering in the Sandstone Caravan Park, 
some 30 kilometers away from their campsite. And Ella was not in good condition. She was dirty, thirsty, and hungry. And when the dog was scanned for a microchip and identified, locals began attempting to contact Ray, but unfortunately, they didn't have any success. The Sandstone Sheriff attempted to contact Ray's daughter, Mel, but he reached Mel's partner, Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth obviously was very concerned, you know, wondering how Ella could have become separated from Ray. I mean, she is literally attached to him at all times. And so she, of course, attempts to contact them via the satellite phone, but Ray didn't answer. And instead, she was greeted by Graham Milne, who told her that he hadn't seen Ray or Jenny since March 22nd. And Graham explained that he had decided to return to Perth at the end of the weekend and accidentally took the satellite phone with him. So Elizabeth quickly realized in that moment that this meant Ray and Jenny had been in the wilds with no way to contact anyone, especially not emergency services, for at least six days. And obviously she's panicking at this point. She immediately contacts Jenny's kids and the police. And obviously, after hearing all this and discovering Ella, Ray and Jenny's families were quick to report the couple missing. However, the inquests and searches didn't begin until March 31st. And to this day, the search is still considered one of the largest in Western Australia's history. Upon arrival, the police easily found Ray and Jenny's camp. It was still fully intact and appeared to be undisturbed. Of course, they searched the immediate area, but there appeared to be no sign of the two of them and no sign about where they possibly could have gone. And with no other leads, the police invited Graham back to the scene and asked for his assistance in looking for them. Which is a major mistake on their part to be like, oh, yeah. you were with them. Why don't you just come help us like search for him rather than immediately thinking, this is weird. You're the only one that came back. I assume they're believing a story he left early's, and they're just not really thinking about yeah. all the possibilities here that maybe... You know, it's it's obvious from the get go. They think this is a case of they went missing by accident or misadventure, which, again, it does happen a lot in the Australian yeah. bush. It's not uncommon. But and just all over the world. I mean, to play devil's advocate, that's kind of what is first believed when someone Most goes missing, right. when they're out in the wilderness, that something happened. And like majority of the time, statistically, that is the case. But. The mistake is assuming that that was the only possibility from the jump. And so Graham took the search team south to multiple mine entrances that the group had been exploring during their weekend there. And the abandoned camp was only two kilometers from the nearest road. So police began seeking anyone who may have driven through the area and possibly could have seen the couple. And so a few days into the search for Ray and Jenny, investigators learned that a group of campers in the area made a statement that they had been coming through the area and discovered a mine shaft north of the abandoned camp that smelled, quote, horrible. And so two officers were sent to look at the mine where they described smelling something like a carcass and seeing a swarm of flies. One officer shone their flashlight down into the opening of the mine shaft, but they couldn't see all the way to the bottom of the mine. The second officer found a dead kangaroo nearby and the two determined that that was the cause of the smell and the flies so they declared the mine shaft to be all clear and then days went by and no stones seemed to be left unturned there were police helicopters and planes in the air and on the ground there were searches on foot as well as in vehicles and on quads if you're not familiar with quads it's just atvs basically just another name for them but during the investigation we're all wondering about graham right 
Well, he did not go unquestioned. In fact, he had given the police a complete timeline of events up until the moment he left camp. According to Graham, the trio arrived and set up camp only a few hours after having breakfast the morning of the 19th. After setting up camp, he said there were immediate issues with the couple's dog, Ella. Ella kept running off, chasing kangaroos and other animals in the area, he said. In fact, Graham claimed that he witnessed the dog run off three times between March 19th and March 21st. On the evening of March 21st, Graham confronted the couple, angry about the dog's behavior, was bothering him so much that he had to bring it up. He claimed that he was short with them and told the two that he was going to go prospecting on his own to blow off steam, which that story to me just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It just seems like like bullshit. It just seems like made up. Like, I, I, This dog was well-behaved by all accounts. Yeah. And yet all of a sudden when Graham's there, unless maybe this dog was just sketched out by Graham too and maybe was acting aloof or acting protective around him. Sometimes dogs just get a, a sense. That's, yeah, honestly, that's a good point. Maybe that's the case. Or yeah, like you said, maybe it's all just bullshit. Right. Or it's just like a poor, poor excuse for a story. Graham said he then took two sandwiches and a bottle of water and went into a mine for 18 hours straight. Get this, he also claimed he never slept during those 18 hours, and then he returned to camp around 3 a.m. on the 22nd of March. And he said when he got back, he found Ella, she was hanging out, and assumed that Jenny and Ray were fast asleep inside of their tent, you know, it's early, early in the morning, and he was still pissed after this solo prospecting expedition, so he decided, you know what, rather than go sleep for a couple hours and leave when the sun comes up, I'm going to leave basically in the middle of the night. So he said he packed up all of his gear, his camp. He left behind a few pieces of prospecting gear for them and then headed out for Perth. He said he left the campsite at 4 a.m. without notifying the supposedly sleeping couple and then headed straight back to Perth, which is a nine-hour drive. Does this make any yeah. sense to you whatsoever? No. He just prospected for 18 hours straight, two, two sandwiches, sandwiches of water, yeah. did not sleep, comes back, packs up his entire camp, and then heads home on a nine-hour drive. I just don't. I There's no part of me that believes that. I mean, even if you thought they were sleeping, wouldn't someone at least try to confirm, like take a peek in the tent or like listen to make sure they were sleeping? I think most people, if you were with a group of people out in the wilderness, would just wake them up, right? They would have like, woken hey, up leaving. from him packing up his tent. Yeah. Yeah. They're sleeping in a tent. It's very, you know, it doesn't block sound. So you would have heard a car start up. Yeah. There would have been sound. The yeah. couple would have 100% and woken up. Also, in the desert, it's silent. Yes. So any sort of, you know, him folding up a chair and heading out, that would right. wake them yeah. up. Right. Yeah, for sure. The slamming of his car right. door, like turning the engine on. No, right. He's so full of shit. He was then asked why he took the satellite phone with him. And he has a lot of really great answers. And this one was. Simply that he had forgotten he had it. Yeah, I don't believe that. If you left with a satellite phone, knowing that's their only form of communication, if they need to get a hold mm -hmm. of someone, even if you accidentally left it and got home, wouldn't you be like, oh, fuck, and then go return it? Yeah, Like, for come sure. on, dude. Like, I don't I care. I know it's a little out of your way, but that's the <laughs> right thing. You can't just be like, mm, well, if they're in trouble, oh, well, because I have the phone now. Yeah, that's... Major, Which I don't, I don't believe uh, he, obviously, I think most of us agree he didn't accidentally take it. But even if he accidentally did, I, I agree. You'd go back. I don't care yeah. how long it is. Or notify somebody. 
Yeah. Like, oops, I actually, you know, tell the family, like, right. hey, I accidentally took their satellite phone just so you know there's no way to get a hold of them. So don't worry if you don't hear from them. So we're seeing red flags from him immediately. Yeah. And, and there's more. On April 8th, 2015, the couple had already been missing for almost two weeks. And this story really blew up. It was especially well known in Western Australia. There are dozens of news stories and articles all speculating on what could have happened to these two very experienced campers. One Perth reporter working on their coverage of the story asked some fire and rescue workers to help them get some good footage of the type of work the rescuers do. So the group stopped at the top of a mine entrance that had already been cleared in the investigation, the one with the dead kangaroo nearby, and a rescue worker by the name Ashley Gasmer strapped into his gear and rappelled into the shaft. As he reached the bottom, he began shouting. Because at the base of the shaft, just to the side, where it wouldn't be visible from the opening, he found a badly decomposed body. According to the reports, the body was a male. It was lying in a north-south orientation with feet furthest from the shaft. The right arm of the body was covered under loose rock material. There was also a large piece of wood positioned over the right leg, but it did not make direct contact with the leg. So basically, in other words, the wood wasn't actually pinning the leg down. The piece of wood was over a meter long and 150 millimeters in diameter. The piece of wood matched the type of wood inside of the mine that is used to pin back the loose material in the walls. The body was fully intact, and the body also still had boots and pants on it, but it wasn't wearing a shirt. The body's legs were splayed out to nearly shoulder width, and Ashley made the observation that he's seen a lot of people fall from this height before and become incapacitated, but in his professional opinion, this body was not in the typical position for someone who had fallen and was rendered unable to move. In fact, he believed the body position was similar to a training mannequin that had been dragged for a distance and then set down. By the time the body was found, it had decomposed enough that it could not be immediately removed from the mine shaft. So forensic experts were sent down there and they spent two days examining the body in the shaft before it was removed on April 10, 2015. That same day, investigators updated Dave Kellett and raised children on the investigation, though they couldn't tell them with complete certainty who the body belonged to, but obviously they're letting them know like, hey, there's a good possibility this is this is Ray. Now, Dave remembers talking to Ray's daughter, Charmaine, on the day that they excavated the body. And in his blog, The Man in the Hole, he recounts the phone call that he had with Charmaine, who he lovingly refers to as the minx because of her strength and perseverance. Charmaine told Dave that the police had told her that a body was found in the mine and that something on the clothing had the word cloud break. So obviously she knew exactly who it was. Dave's heart dropped as all he could muster to say to his niece was, I'm so sorry, love. But despite the strength of Charmaine, Dave knew that this realization had broken her. All she could do was say, I have to go before hanging up the phone. And the two knew without saying it that the body removed from the mine had to have been Ray. And once the body was sent in for forensic testing, it was confirmed to be Ray's body. And here's some footage of the mine where Ray's body was found. This is the abandoned mine shaft where Raymond Kellett's body was found by authorities nearly two weeks ago. And about a kilometre in that direction was the campsite where he and Jenny had been staying. Search crews canvassed about 10 square kilometres of this area, but no sign of Jenny was ever found. Some locals say the disappearances are hurting visitor numbers in town. Diane Jellett normally runs a food stall, but it hasn't been opened because numbers are so low. It's great to see the tourists here, but a lot of them have dropped off. 
because I think because of all this or the rain, we don't know. It's um, very sad. Police say it's unlikely they'll return to Sandstone in the near future, but their investigation into what happened to Jenny and Raymond Kellett is far from over. So obviously the mine shaft and the surrounding area was thoroughly examined for evidence and investigators found that there were a few odd things near Ray's body in the mine, but police didn't seem to find them to be relevant to the investigation, interestingly enough. And this included rusty metal, a bottle of pump water, and a gas can with the top cut open, likely for, you know, carrying materials like kind of a makeshift bucket. And outside of the mine shaft, investigators discovered a pile of ash, but after they sifted through it, they found no additional items within it. Investigators also found three cigarette butts. This is pretty crucial at the entrance of the mine shaft, but they were not retrieved on the day that the body was found or on the day that the body was retrieved. Big, big mistake. And one thing investigators notably didn't find during their investigation of the mine was any trace of Jenny. But the autopsy of Ray was yet to be performed, and there was still hope that they would find clues to what happened to the two of them. But the initial autopsy of Ray left his family confused and upset. The autopsy revealed that Ray had extensive damage to his right hand and the ribs, arm, and face of his left side. Ray's hyoid bone was broken and his left cheek was fractured. Now, if you know a lot about true crime, this is already saying a lot to you. The official report determined that Ray had fallen into the shaft and hit the walls on the way down before hitting a tall mound of debris and rolling out of sight of the mine opening. However, there were those among the investigators who did not agree with this explanation of Ray's injuries, along with many other details of the investigation. And one of the investigators on the case, forensic specialist Dr. Mark Reynolds, was convinced that Ray's death was not caused by a fall into the mine. Like I just mentioned, Ray had a broken hyoid bone. And like I said, if you know a lot about true crime or you just know about, you know, bodies in general, this is almost always caused by hanging or strangulation. It's a huge red flag in any case. And additionally, Ray had his own blood deep into the tread of his boots, which Mark believed meant Ray had to have been standing while bleeding at some point. The injuries to Ray's skull also contained some deflected bone fragment, which Mark argued could be a sign of a gunshot wound. However, his colleagues disagreed and refused to consider the death as anything other than an accident. After the report was gathered and the evidence was submitted, Detective Sergeant Stephen Cleal attempted to charge Graham Milne in the couple's disappearance, but passing along the case to public prosecutions isn't as easy as it may seem. I could understand maybe how they think it's accidental if Jenny wasn't on this trip. My biggest thing is, why is Ray dead in the bottom of a mine shaft? Jenny's nowhere to be found, and there's no evidence of Jenny even be anywhere near that. Yeah, that and they were on this trip together. Yeah, instantly adds major suspicion. And they can't find her anywhere yet. The only other person that was on this trip or knew their whereabouts, Graham, is somehow just fine. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Nope, certainly doesn't. Have you ever thought about how our clothes are sort of like the storybook of our life chapters? I mean, you can look back at different areas in your life or different eras, I should say, 
and what you were wearing at the time and the memories that come along with it. Have you thought about what you want your 2024 chapter to look like? Whether you're picking up a new activity this year or you're looking for maternity wear maybe, or you're simply bored of your old clothes, well, the stylist at Stitch Fix can create the perfect look for you and your unique journey. While the stylist at Stitch Fix can help curate the perfect look for you and your unique journey. Stitch Fix is the best way to shop new styles and brands. You can think of them as your style partner. Your stylist will learn about your taste and collaborate with you on looks you'll love without breaking the bank. And you're in complete control. You can just share your style preferences, your sizes, budget, and Stitch Fix sends you five items in your fix right to your door. And with your choices in mind and sizes extra small to 3XL, they'll find your perfect fit. And the best part about it for me is that you can try it all on at home. And then it's easy to send back what you don't like. Shipping and returns are always free. They just send you like this prepaid bag. You throw everything in there and you're good to go. They have over a thousand brands and styles. So no matter what season of life you're in, Stitch Fix has you covered. You can simply order a refresh as needed or set it and forget it with regular fixes. You're in control. Personally, I like to get mine every three weeks because I hate shopping. I truly do. I mean, I really hate shopping in person. I hate dressing rooms. I hate the mall. I just hate, 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 hate it all. But I don't even really like online shopping either. So for Stitch Fix to just take care of it for me is really, really nice. And what I also love about Stitch Fix is over time, your stylist really kind of picks up on what you like and what you don't like. And your fixes just get more and more tailored to you with time. And since I've been doing it for so long, they know me incredibly well. Thanks, Stitch Fix. They just get me and they'll get you too. Try today at stitchfix.com slash mile higher and you get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash mile higher. Once again, stitchfix.com slash mile higher. And that's one of the things I kind of find frustrating with the criminal justice system in Australia. It definitely works very different from how it works here in the US. But the process of beginning a criminal proceeding in Australia is very unique. First, the investigators must gather all their findings and write up specific reports to present to the Director of Public Prosecutions, which abbreviated as DPP, and that's what I'm going to call it going forward. So the DPP does not look into anything beyond the scope of the specific information provided to them. It kind of reminds me of like what a district attorney does to some extent. You know, they're presenting the case. They decide whether or not there's enough evidence to file charges. So if the DPP believes that the presented information shows there's enough evidence that someone could potentially be found guilty of a crime, they will approve the case to move to criminal proceedings. At that point, charges can be drawn up against a defendant and court hearings can be scheduled. However, the DPP never approved charges to be laid against Graham Milne. According to them, there simply wasn't enough evidence to tie Graham to the suspected homicide. However, many experts agree that the evidence is in fact there but that the handling of the investigation did such irreparable damage that it ultimately caused the case to not be approved, which I 100% agree with. In fact, the investigators were so set on the deaths and disappearances of the couple being accidental that they seemed to have overlooked a ton of evidence here. One piece of evidence that wasn't considered relevant at the time in the initial investigation was the finding of cigarette butts near the mine where Ray's body was found. The butts weren't collected when Ray's body was found, despite them being in close proximity to his body and it being known that Ray was not a smoker. So whose cigarette butts are these? Another issue with the investigation involved a loaded rifle that was found in Ray and Jenny's vehicle, and those who knew Ray made it clear that he was extremely strict in terms of gun safety. Ray never loaded a weapon until he was ready to fire, and he would have never left the loaded weapon in the vehicle. Additionally, though, this is what's sketchy to me, is that there's two bullets missing from the weapon. Another concerning oversight was the lack of consideration given to a map that was found in the prospector's belongings. The map was hand-drawn and showed the route that the group planned to take. This map had a specific mine-marked first hole, 
which was a marking created by Graham. And these mines were all in the opposite direction of where Graham led the police. Additionally, the first hole appeared to mark the exact mine where Ray's body would be later found. Make that make sense. How did, I was just like, how do you miss that? Though the map was used to reroute the search and eventually Ray's body was found, it didn't appear that anyone questioned Graham on why he showed searchers mine entrances that weren't even on their planned route of exploration. Investigators also made a critical mistake by not considering this abandoned campground a crime scene as they didn't rope off the area to preserve evidence. And better yet, they invited Graham to come back, the only person who did make it back from this trip, to come on back to this abandoned campsite to aid in the search for the couple. The biggest issue the family and some investigators had with Ray and Jenny's disappearance was the general just attitude toward the entire situation. It seemed that most of the people involved just believed that the couple got lost or injured while chasing down their dog. However, this belief relied exclusively on the statements of Graham and completely disregarded eyewitness statements and interviews with the family where it was said that Ray and Jenny were excellent and experienced outdoors people. They were outside all the time. Ella was also incredibly well-behaved and had been on multiple trips with them. And Ella had been sitting at the campfire unsupervised, seemingly waiting for the return of her owners. A few months after Ray's body was discovered, Graham's house in Medina was searched on November 3rd, according to the West Australia publication. Police did end up seizing items from the house, although they did not specify what those items were. We have a clip here discussing more on this. Any progress is good progress, and obviously the police have been busy with this in the background. Uh, And although we haven't had a lot of uh, information, they've obviously been working fairly intensely behind the scenes. So good news, um, and hopefully something comes of it. For Jim Keegan's, it's been seven months of bad news. In March, his former wife and mother of their three children, Jenny Kellett, went missing in the goldfields near Sandstone. Her husband Raymond was found at the bottom of a 12-metre abandoned mine shaft, but Jenny had disappeared. And Jim has been searching for answers ever since. That's the main one for me and the kids is that we find out what happened to Jenny and, and Ray and uh, we get some closure for them. That may have become a step closer today with an early morning raid on a home in Medina. Police say they've taken a number of items away for further testing. Nine News understands 63-year-old Graham Milne, a workmate of the Kellett's, and the last known person to see them alive is assisting police with their inquiries. Milne was a friend of Raymond Kellett's, who encouraged them to get involved in the world of amateur prospecting. The latest developments are a far cry from the official police line back in March, when they all but ruled out the idea of foul play. At this point in time, we're not seeing anything that suggests criminality. Are you serious? Yes. There's nothing suspicious about this? At this point in time, we're saying there is no evidence of any criminality. However, we are making sure that we investigate it thoroughly and we look at all the possibilities. But Jenny Kellett's own children had a feeling there was much more to her vanishing and their stepfather's untimely death. I went out there, I saw the site, and it just... Knowing them, it just makes no sense for them to get lost. Um, There's so many ways back to camp. Like the reporter is like, there's nothing suspicious yeah. here. How can you say that with a straight face? I mean, they're they're saying what police often say is like, oh, we're not going to say one way or another. But 
at this time, there's nothing that points to criminality, but I'm like, uh, nothing. Okay, dude. I think there's a little something at least. So after the DPP declined to prosecute Graham Mill, and it appeared that the case went cold. However, experts say that wasn't the case. Behind the scenes, investigators continued to take tips, find evidence, and investigate Ray's death and Jenny's disappearance. Then six years after the couple vanished near the sandstone mines, an appeal was made to the coroner's court of Western Australia. Now, the coroner's court is a specialist court system that exists completely separately from the DPP. Their goal is not to convict someone of a crime, but to determine the specific causes and manner of a death. Since it seemed investigators couldn't agree on Ray's cause of death, and an inquest was taken up by the coroner's court, and a deep investigation into Ray's death was started by state coroner Rosalinda Vincenza Florenda Foliani. Wow. Hopefully I got that right. Her investigation lasted from January 17th to February 11, 2020, and her findings were made public on May 10th, 2021. And as the inquest by the coroner's court played out, many discoveries were actually made. At an inquest of senior constable Michael Lee, it was discovered that the three cigarette butts first seen on April 9th, 2015, had not been collected until almost a month later, May 7th, 2015. Constable Lee was asked why the cigarette butts were not collected in April when they were first found. And he explained that in April, his focus was on retrieving Ray's remains. But upon re-examining the entrance to the mine shaft in May of 2015, he, quote, treated the area like crime scene and gathered the cigarette butts. I mean, it's, it's things like this that just like make you want to beat your head against the wall. It's so stupid. They were tested for DNA at that point and came back as a match for two people. One of them was Jenny. Two of the cigarettes actually came back as a match for Jenny. And then the other one came back as a match for Graham. So what does that tell you? There's a possibility that those two were near spot where Ray's body was found strong possibility i'd argue right and during the inquest they also spoke to forensic specialist dr mark reynolds regarding his discovery of the blood in ray's shoe tread and the investigating coroner viewed mark's report and agreed that the location of the blood signified that ray had been bleeding while in a standing position in fact the depth of the bleeding and the existence of the undisturbed blood in the outside of the soul indicated to coroner foliani that ray had been standing in a pool of his own blood but had not continued to walk for any distance after standing in the pool of the blood and that's because if he had the blood would have been rubbed away from certain areas on his boots and as we mentioned one of the items that investigators originally found in the mine shaft was a gas can that was cut for carrying items and during Foliani's reexamination, she discovered that the gas can had traces of Ray's blood on it. And this is important for a number of reasons. The can was three meters away from Ray's body at the back of a bulbed area of the mine entrance. The only way that the can could get into that position is if it was already in the mine before Ray was or if Ray had been holding it when he fell into the mine shaft. So let that sink in. If Ray had been chasing Ella when he fell into the mine shaft, that would indicate that he simultaneously was holding the water bottle found near him and the gas can, which is just unlikely. Additionally, the dust buildup on the can suggested that the can had been in the mine far longer than Ray's body was. However, 
the blood on the gas can three meters from Ray's body is not consistent with Ray falling into the mine shaft and rolling into a position away from the entrance. That type of blood spray would suggest a more, you know, forceful type of injury much closer to the gas can, not injuries gained from hitting the walls of the mine shaft on the way down. And during the initial investigation, Senior Sergeant Jim Whitehead hypothesized that Ray and Jenny had used their quad bike to chase Ella, the dog, after maybe Ella had chased after a kangaroo. And at some point, the pair left the quad bike and ran another 1,200 meters, less than 4,000 feet, before Ray fell into the mine shaft. Sergeant Whitehead continued by hypothesizing that Jenny sat by the mine shaft entrance and panicked before then just wandering off into the wilderness and becoming lost. However, in her findings, Dr. Foliani found multiple pieces of evidence that opposed Sergeant Whitehead's theory. This included the fact that Ray and Jenny were experienced in the outdoors and were unlikely to become lost or confused. And additionally, there are no known medical or mental health issues at play with Ray or Jenny. Ray and Jenny had also trained extensively for this trip and learned how to appropriately enter and explore mine shafts, which lowered the risks of having, you know, a dangerous accident. Plus, there was evidence and witness statements as well supporting the couple having the adequate gear to remain safe in and around the mines. I mean, the biggest thing for me that just seems like obvious and investigators clearly didn't take serious enough was just the knowledge that these two had. I mean, they were very well aware that they're near a bunch of open mine shafts that you could fall down and never get out of. So it just seems very unlikely to me that even if they were chasing their dog, that they would have just done this like blindly without being careful yeah, or just go off racing through the desert on their, you know, their ATV and then just happen to fall into one of the mines. And I again, it's like, it's, agree. it's so unlikely. Again, it may make it more likely if they found Jenny and Ray together in the same mine shaft, perhaps. But like the fact that Jenny is still not found just, doesn't make any sense. I don't know. I think that would even make it even More less suspicious. Likely. Yeah. yeah, it could be. Yeah, I don't know. either way. The last detail that disputed Sergeant Whitehead's claim was the position of the quad bike, which was 1,200 meters or a little less than 4,000 feet from where Ray was found. If the couple had been chasing the dog, why would they have abandoned the quad and moved on foot for such a long distance? There are major details that Dr. Foliani felt distinctly invalidated the theory that Ray died from accidentally falling into a mine shaft specifically the lack of damage to his lower extremities. Based on Ray's positioning in the mine, it was theorized that he must have fallen into the mine shaft feet first, which would line up with the theory of him falling in while chasing Ella. However, in that scenario, Foliani would expect to see some skeletal damage to Ray's feet, ankles, legs, and pelvis. To confirm her theory, Foliani reached out to an orthopedic specialist, Professor R. Zellweger. Professor Zellweger explained that with Ray's weight and the distance of the shaft, the kinetic energy of the fall would have caused major damage to the man's feet, ankles, and pelvis if he had fallen feet first into the shaft. When asked if Ray could have hit something perhaps sticking out of the mine shaft walls on the way down, negating some of the kinetic energy of the fall, Professor Zellweger stated that he would expect them to see more surface damage to Ray's body where he hit this obstruction. Professor Zellweger continued to explain that Ray didn't have any injuries to indicate he landed in the mine head first either. Being killed from a headfirst fall at that height would have created very identifiable breaks to the spine and skull, as well as noticeable hematomas. 
With all the details coming together, Dr. Fuliani has become even more certain that Ray's death was not accidental. During the coroner's court investigation, Graham Milne was taken in for inquest, where he was asked to answer some burning questions the new court had after reading the evidence and the previous statements to the police. During his inquest, Graham was asked if he intentionally led search crews in the wrong direction during the April 2015 search for Ray and Jenny. Graham was adamant that he had not. Later, Graham was asked why he didn't tell investigators about the map that he had made with Ray, which depicted mines in the opposite direction to where Graham had led searchers. Graham simply said, I guess I forgot. Which, come on, that is suspicious as hell. He literally had a map of where they were going, and he doesn't even share that with, with investigators. Come on. Graham was also questioned about a discrepancy in his claim that he drove straight home to Perth on March 22nd. Originally, he told police he had traveled home by going through Mount Magnet, which is the longer route, but has the advantage of being an asphalt road. However, police extracted GPS data from his vehicle, which placed him on the southern section of the Payne's Fine Sandstone Road and not Mount Magnet. Graham explained that at some point during his ride home, he turned around to head back to camp and make amends with the couple. I guess he got, you know, he felt guilty for leaving them. However, he ultimately said, nah, fuck it, I'm going home. He was then asked, why didn't you tell investigators that at the time? Basically like, dude, why are you lying to us? To which Graham replied, because it would have made him out to be an idiot. Which that is the worst fucking excuse I've ever heard. Like, because it'll make me look bad basically. So I'm not, that's why I didn't say that. And then he just blamed everything else, his bullshit answers on his lack of sleep. And he got confused. Just stonewalling investigators. Graham was later asked about the two missing bullets in the gun found in Ray's vehicle. And Graham claimed that at one point... During the weekend of March 19th, a white vehicle drove up on the other side of the hill on which they were camped, and two men exited the vehicle and started shooting their hunting rifles. And this is all, this is very this story confusing. Is Try to follow. This poor. Yeah, it's, it's It makes no wack. sense we were whatsoever. Really racking our brains trying to understand this. But Graham claimed that in response, Ray had Graham set a pack of cigarettes on the tree at the bottom of the hill. Then according to Graham, Ray shot at the tree and the cigarettes twice as warning shots to the men. And at first I was like, why? What the hell? Yeah. What's with the cigarettes? But I guess our best guess is that he's trying to say that Ray had a really good shot and could shoot a small target like a pack of cigarettes. And that's why he did it. Which yeah. I'm not like, entirely sure, but I, I Well, can't. this story seems to be completely made up because well, they never yeah. talked. They never located who these two men were. Nobody's ever come forward to say that there are these two men. Not to say that didn't necessarily happen, but the events don't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, hunters don't just start. Sh- like, if there's clearly people right over here where you're seeing, you don't just get out and just everybody just start shooting your guns off. Like, that's just not something anybody does. There's hunter safety for a reason right right and then the the like oh you know ray's such an impressive shooter he could like snipe both of you i'm gonna go put this pack of cigarettes and he said that ray told him to do it right well you know or graham go put these cigarettes up it just makes no fucking sense right well we can all agree he's clearly trying to like concoct a story here and it's like the best that like, oh, maybe Ray and Jenny were murdered by these two hunters that mm-hmm. we random or these two guys this... that were out there shooting guns. Yep. Yep. He's trying to like Create mislead police. Yeah. 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 Well, besides all of that, 
Ray's family said that this behavior, even if it did happen, is just completely out of character for Ray. He was very strict about gun safety and would have just, you know, hollered at these men, you know, told them not to yeah, shoot. Yeah, you, you and could yell at them and they'd hear you. They said basically the last thing he would do is actually do warning shots. Yeah, pop. come on. Yeah, no, and it's nobody. just it's just not which obviously some people would do something like that, but it just it's not fitting for him, right? So Graham was also asked about the cigarette butts found near the mine shaft where Ray's body was found, and he answered that he had never intentionally left cigarette butts in that area, but he had walked past the mine at one point during the weekend mm-hmm, and flicked his cigarette butts on the ground when done with them, and or he often did that. So he's just a litterer. Yep, and just openly saying that. Out in the, the in nature too, lovely. Yeah. But anyway, Graham's lawyer then claimed that it was possible that since and this is some real bu- bullshit, so try to wrap your mind around this. But they claimed that since the cigarette butts weren't collected until May, that they could have been dragged from their original location by the police who had stomped all over the crime scene, and you know, then they ended up bringing it on their yeah. shoes to the mine shaft, just which, blaming the investigation the 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 team that worked on this, which I guess smart on the defense for, yeah, for doing that. They're creating that doubt. And, the, and because the police, it is possible that like a cigarette butt could, could get stuck in the tread on your shoe. What are the tracked exactly out to the mine? Like to where his body was found. Yeah. Come on. But yeah, that's, they were able to make that argument because of the, the shitty work done initially by the police. Yeah. Should have been made a crime scene right away. And this is an argument that, you know, really helped to highlight the failings of the original investigative team, which just plays really well in their favor. If the cigarette butts had been collected when they were first seen on April 9th, it would have been a less believable argument that the debris were just moved from one location to another. But, yep, that's unfortunate and why it's so important to preserve evidence and secure the crime scene. I don't know about you, but there's been so many times where I've gone to look at my credit card statements, my bank account statements, and I see subscription charges that I thought I canceled long, long ago. Or better yet, some subscriptions that are actually charging me double for whatever reason. Well, thanks to Rocket Money, the personal finance app that does so many wonderful things. Not only does it find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, but it monitors your spending and even helps lower your bills. This has helped me get my spending, especially my subscriptions, under control. I absolutely love Rocket Money. I truly get on it every single day. It's usually like one of the first apps I pop on in the morning. I get email notifications when it detects, you know, unusual spending so that I can go take a look at it. It just really gives me a much clearer picture of my financial situation. But the subscription feature is amazing. Not only does it put it all in one place for me where I can see what I have, what I'm paying for, but if I need to cancel it, I just tap a button and I'll get on customer service. I don't make phone calls because that's the last thing I have time for. And Rocket Money does the rest. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest, which is awesome. I highly recommend this feature. Go take every bill that you pay and just see what Rocket Money can do because you might be surprised at the money they're able to save you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash milehire. That's rocketmoney.com slash milehire. 
go to this link. Let them know we sent you at rocketmoney.com slash milehire. And so through the years, many people have become suspicious of Graham Milne, as you can imagine. And as far as we know, he was the only person to leave that 2015 camping trip alive. And he has done and said many things that make him appear suspicious. But still, the question remains, what did Graham have to gain from the murder of Ray and Jenny? And this is this has been like the most confusing part. There are some theories, and one of those theories is that Graham and the couple got in a fight and that Ray was accidentally killed and Graham killed Jenny to cover up his tracks. However, there isn't much evidence to support this claim, really any evidence to support it. There is another theory that Graham planned to kill the couple the entire time and simply killed them for the thrill of it. And while these types of things definitely do happen and and certainly could have happened, it's important to note that Graham does not appear to have any history of violent offenses or mental health issues. Now, the most popular theory that it seems most people out there gravitate towards and even some of the investigators lean towards um, has to do with Graham's apparent attraction to Jenny. Possible attraction. As we said back in 2014, when Jenny experienced her back issues at work, she was sent to the medical area and that's where she met Graham. And it was reported that Graham possibly smitten by Jenny's good looks and charm, made a pass at her. He allegedly told Jenny that her back pain could be alleviated by a massage and even offered to be the one to give it to her. Jenny declined his Jenny declined his offer and later behaved as though the interaction never happened, likely as a way to prevent Graham from feeling any embarrassment from being turned down. And this alleged incident has led many people to believe that Graham may have killed Ray out of jealousy. And when Jenny didn't return his advances, maybe he killed her as well. Which would be a pretty extreme. Yeah, it's, it sounds extreme. But people do extreme stuff. Do. Yeah, it's true. You for, can't rule it out. No, you can't. Another theory I had too is like, what if they did find a good spot for prospecting? And rather than wanting to share whatever they found with them. Yeah, I've thought of that too. He took them out because of that but I, I feel like maybe that would have been looked into further that they would have seen if anything was found or maybe they did well find he went on his 18 hour it. could he have found something didn't want to share it with them took it killed them could have i think maybe he found a spot and he didn't want it and it was in an area where they were gonna go yeah and he ultimately was like i don't you know there might be something big here so i don't want to bring them into it but again, I feel like you could just lie to them and be like, because, but again, we don't know how no, much of his story is happen. true or not. We don't even know if he went on this 18 hour prospecting right. trip. There's just so much we don't know because he's not told the truth about what happened. I do lean towards the most popular theory that this was a jealousy type thing going yeah, on. Yeah, I, I lean that way too. Um, and that this was probably a planned. There murder. are, there are um, several people who theorize that maybe Graham had made another pass at Jenny during the trip uh, and then that yeah. turned into a fight um, in which Jenny and Ray were both killed. Um, but unfortunately, finding out what really happened to them would come down to continued investigation and discovery of Jenny's body. That's going to be huge. Yeah. Hopefully that actually happens one day, but it has been, it's been a long time. Or maybe Graham will just feel guilty enough and finally confess would love yeah, that been a long to happen. Time but, yeah. I don't know if that will ever happen. On May 10th, 2020, 
after thoroughly reviewing the case, interviewing dozens of witnesses and investigators, and assessing the autopsy report of Ray, Dr. Foliani came to her final conclusion. She stated that Ray was a victim of a violent death as a result of a homicide. She also concluded that Jenny, who has never been found, was also dead as a result of a homicide. The official declaration of Jenny's death wasn't something that surprised her family, but it was something they'd been waiting on for many years. Foliani also weighed in on the investigative efforts put forth in 2015 so she could make a recommendation to the Western Australian Police Force on how to improve their investigations and search and rescue missions going forward. She noted that had the police utilized two search and rescue units and coordinators, there would have been less room for groups to become overwhelmed and make poor decisions, like not entering the mine shafts before clearing them and not collecting evidence when first discovered. She made it clear that with the team available to him, she believed that Sergeant White had had done the best that he could at the time and hoped a recommendation would be considered during future search and rescue operations out there in Western Australia. Despite the coroner's court's findings coming a little late, Ray and Jenny's families felt the new report was a reason for renewed hope. Dr. Foliani made a touching remark about the loss of the couple at the end of her forensic findings. She said that the loss of Ray and Jenny was disturbing and unsettling, and the family's pain and grief never stops. Though she couldn't theorize an exact cause of death of Jenny, she was certain Jenny was deceased and located in the sandstone area. Therefore, she recommended that ongoing efforts to find Jenny continued and that the investigative body stay open to new evidence that could come up in the future. She ended her report by saying, quote, Ray and Jenny were greatly loved and deeply respected by their families. Their deaths are a loss to their loved ones and to the community. With her findings, the Kellett family hoped that maybe justice was around the corner. But sadly, that wasn't the case. Despite the findings, no charges could be brought against Graham Milne without DPP approval. Even if the DPP did move to prosecute Graham Milne, none of his bizarre commentary and his coronial inquest was admissible in court. In fact, his lawyer ensured before Graham answered any questions that none of the man's answers or behaviors could be used against him in later trials. And as you can imagine, this was very disappointing for Ray and Jenny's loved ones. In the early months of 2023, eight years after Ray and Jenny disappeared and Ray was subsequently murdered, a panel of experts alongside Dave Collette participated in 60 Minutes Australia Under Investigation panel. Their group discussed the investigation along with the 2020 inquest. The experts included criminal barrister Judith Fordham, New South Wales criminal detective Damian Loon, and Dr. Mark Reynolds, who had worked on the original case. The panel discussed the failures of the police involved in the investigation of Ray and Jenny's disappearance. First, they wondered why the scene wasn't treated as a crime scene and why Graham was allowed back into the scene unsupervised. And they also want to know why multiple witnesses' statements have seemed to be ignored or taken with little regard. One witness claimed to see Ella sitting at the campsite alone during the time that Ray and Jenny were missing. That witness pointed out that Ella was sitting quietly and wasn't even trying to eat food that was visible on a nearby table. And these details don't mesh well with the theory that Ella misbehaved and often ran away from camp. Another two witnesses, Mark and Georgina Granville, claimed to have seen a man who matched Graham's description around 4 a.m. on March 22nd, the same morning that Graham was you know, headed home. The man was apparently standing outside of a dark-colored four-wheel drive vehicle with an attached trailer with a 4x4 on the Payne's Fine Sandstone Road. Mark said that he saw the man crouch down by a vehicle at the head of the trail, leading to the mine shaft where Ray was later found dead. 
Mark believed the man was having car trouble and needed help. But after he approached the man, the man became angry and basically told Mark to fuck off and shoot him away. And Mark said he found this pretty suspicious, which I, I think any of us would find that suspicious. Yeah, I wonder who that guy was. Right. The panel also discussed the lack of urgency from investigators, likely because they were so convinced that the investigation wasn't criminal. This led them to delay questioning Graham, allowing him free access overnight to the crime scene and not picking up and recording evidence in a timely manner. I think they even just let him sleep there. Yeah, they did. Nice. Unsupervised at night. Yeah, yep. who knows what he was doing? He could have went and dumped stuff. Oh my God, or you know he was doing something. He wasn't just making sleeping. sure he was covering his tracks. Yep. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is just like one of those cases where Major. it's so frustrating because so many, so many balls were dropped that this, this could have easily been solved by now. And yeah. that's, think about how, as a family member, how, how, oh my God, the frustration you would feel. Yeah, just knowing this anger. could have been, yeah, the anger you'd have. I would, I would be filled with rage every day. So anyway, the panel weighed in on many of the aspects of the case that had been discussed in the 2020 inquest and touched on the details that family and the general public had been discussing for years. And at the end of their deep dive into the case, the group all agreed that a new inquiry into the couple's deaths should be opened and that the DPP should proceed with pressing charges against Graham Milne. And as months go by after the under-investigation panel, the families of Ray and Jenny can only wait and see if DPP will allow investigators to bring charges against Graham Milne. But the DPP still claims that there is simply not enough evidence to pursue charges against Graham. And there likely won't be unless Jenny's body is found. And like I said earlier, of course, you never want to give hope. And there's there's definitely hope that she will be found one day. However, it has been a long time. And we're talking about a really vast area and so much time for him to to dispose of her. I mean, it's it's concerning that that day will ever come. Although I really really hope it does for this family. Yeah, and I just think of how badly decomposed right Ray was already that by now. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, it's been a long time. I don't know what what they would they would find bones at this point. And this is heartbreaking too. When Jenny went missing, all her assets were frozen. And this prevented her children from inheriting her estate. The bank ended up foreclosing upon the Kellett's property, ripping it away from the hands of the couple's children. Yeah, their whole farm mm -hmm. taken from them. And though Jenny's kids were glad to have some semblance of closure, the damage was already done. Despite the devastating setbacks to the investigation, citizens in Western Australia still rally behind the Kellett family. After the 2023 under-investigation interview, Dave Kellett met a man who goes by Rick, who saw the episode and had some concerns about disturbed tiles and debris in the mine shaft. Dave met with Rick and the men went back to the site where Ray was found dead. Once there, they came upon the pile of debris in the mine shaft that supposedly caused Ray's body to tumble away from the mine shaft entrance. Rick decided to search through the pile of debris and within it, he discovered a shirt. The shirt was collected as evidence and given to the police, but Dave hasn't been told if any forensics have been completed on the shirt. Can you believe that? They'd even find this shirt after all this time. Still, it seems amazing that after so many years, a random citizen managed to think of a place to look for clues that police had somehow overlooked initially. Around the time that Dave met Rick, he also learned from locals in the Sandstone pub that a couple of men, one of whom worked at a nearby medical center, were actually out searching for signs of Jenny. Intrigued, Dave contacted the medical center asking about one of their employees who had been searching for Jenny 
and the receptionist on the phone seemed confused but transferred Dave to a doctor on the staff. That doctor was equally confused and told Dave he'd call him if he found anything out. An hour later, Dave received a call from the CEO of the medical center. During that chat, he learned that the CEO and his friend had gone out to look for Jenny every weekend for the past three years. The sheer kindness and selflessness of these strangers is what continues to give Dave hope that someday his brother and his sister-in-law will get the justice they deserved. At some point following Ray's death, there was a funeral service held, although the details surrounding it aren't public as far as we could find. Dave hopes that one day Jenny will be brought home and her ashes can be spread with Ray's so they can once again be together. There are two separate $1 million reward funds for information that leads to a conviction in the homicide of Ray and the disappearance of Jenny. So anyone with information is urged to contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000 or online at crimestopperswa.com.au, which will link all of that information in the description box and show notes for you. But man, this one is frustrating. Yeah, it really is. It's frustrating thinking that he's just out free. And of course, it's alleged. These are our opinions and the opinions of many others, might I say. I think a lot of you are going to agree with us, but we don't know for sure. We don't We don't know what actually happened. I mean, as so, far as we know, the police have never come out and said he's directly linked or is a suspect. Or yeah. So allegedly, these are our opinions, but he is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. But of course, we want to know what you guys think and what makes most sense to you. I know we presented several theories. If any of those theories, you know, really ring true to you, or if maybe there's something that we hadn't thought of, we always love to hear from you guys. Sometimes you come up with really um, interesting theories that we hadn't even explored. So let us know your thoughts. But Absolutely. That is going to be it for us today. We'll see you next time. Yeah. But until then, keep, keep on, on taking, taking your, your mind, mind a mile higher. <laughs>